Welcome to the lead. I'm Jake Tapper. A lot to get into ahead. For the very first time in American history, the daughter of a former president of the United States has been forced to testify as a witness in a case against her father, the former president, Ivanka Trump, on the stand, testifying in the civil fraud trial against the Trump family business. Emails in court today showed that Ivanka once proposed that her father lower his net worth in order to get a loan. What might that mean for the case? That's coming up. Also ahead, a woman from New Jersey who was trapped in Gaza. She spent nearly a month trapped there with her three kids, the youngest just two months old. We've been telling her story since the Tuesday after that horrible October 7th attack by Hamas. She arrived back in the U.S. just two days ago. She's back in Jersey and is giving the lead her first interview after escaping from that hell. Off, also, off the top here, America sending a strong message, and according to President Joe Biden, quote, democracy won and MAGA lost, unquote. Three big wins for Democrats last night in Kentucky, in Ohio, and in Virginia, in two red states and a purple state. Much different results than what new poll numbers show for President Biden himself. If there is any one message that voters sent last night, it seems to be that they do not want politicians, whether politicians in Columbus, Ohio, or Richmond, Virginia, or Frankfort, Kentucky, they do not want politicians making decisions for women at the doctor's office. In Ohio, a state that Donald Trump carried twice, voters last night decisively approved a ballot measure to protect abortion rights in their state constitution, continuing a winning trend for abortion rights advocates since the overturning of Roe v. Wade last year. Abortion, also a major issue in Virginia, where Republican Governor Glenn Youngkin was trying to convince voters to give him full control of the government of the Commonwealth with the promise of what he called reasonable abortion restrictions, a ban on the procedure after 15 weeks, with some exceptions, Youngkin invested a lot of time, effort, energy, money, and personal capital. He got involved in the primary process. He took candidates to message boot camp, and all for naught. Instead, Democrats not only kept control of the state Senate, they gained power, grabbing control of the state's House of Delegates, quelling the momentum for any compelling argument for Youngkin 2024. This afternoon, Governor Youngkin admitted he was disappointed. I think the number one lesson is that Virginia is really purple and and that going into the, these uh, these uh, uh, elections, we knew that they were going to be tough. Abortion is a is a is potentially one of the most difficult topics in Virginia and around the nation. And my hope is continues to be that we can find a way to come together as Virginians and lead. In Kentucky, Democratic Governor Andy Beshear won re-election in a deep red Commonwealth after making protecting abortion rights a major issue in his campaign. Beshear defeated the state's attorney general, Daniel Cameron, a Republican superstar, it was thought. Cameron, endorsed by Donald Trump, often described as Mitch McConnell's protege, Republicans spent much of their efforts trying to nationalize the race, tying Beshear to President Biden, which Beshear thinks ultimately backfired. Well, my opponent certainly tried to make this race uh, about Joe Biden, and it didn't work. Uh, these races, especially governor's races, 
uh, are, are so state-centered and specific because your job is to get things done. Just one observation. The party that wins the governor's mansion in Kentucky has gone on to win the White House the following year. That's five election cycles in a row. Will this make six in a row? I don't know. Despite these victories for Democrats, there were also some serious warning signs for the leader of the Democratic Party. A CNN poll released last night finds former President Donald Trump leads President Biden 49% to 45% in a head-to-head matchup. We are still, of course, a year away. Let's break all of this down with CNN's John King at the Magic Wall. John, walk us through how we can square these bad polls for Biden with this really impressively strong night for Democrats. It's a giant debate in the Democratic Party. Did the candidates, did Andy Beshear, did the Abortion Rights Initiative, did the, the delegates, House of Delegates and Senate candidates of Virginia, did those Democrats win despite Biden? Is Biden weak and vulnerable and those Democrats are winning, those issues are winning because the voters are with them but not with the president? Or as the White House argues, when the president's on the ballot next year, like Andy Beshear was yesterday, like the constitutional amendment was yesterday, and you're drawing a contrast, he'll be just fine. That's what the White House says. If you look at our polling and the CBS, I mean, this uh, New York Times Siena College polling that came out, uh, the president is in danger of losing all these states he flipped, right? He flipped these five. Hillary Clinton won Nevada. If you look closely at the polling and deep into it, the vulnerabilities with his own coalition, uh, disappointment about the economy, questions about whether he's too old, does he have the vitality to be president? The polling tells you uh, that we have the possibility to have this again. Right, to go back to something like 2016, Oof. where Donald Trump wins the Electoral College, whether yeah. or not he wins the popular vote. So how do you square that? That's what the national polls show. That's what the New York Times, Siena College State polls show. You're right. Well, that's a great question. How do you square that with what we saw last night? You saw a Democratic governor in a very red state. Look at all this blue, significantly in the suburbs, around Louisville, around Frankfurt, around Lexington, the Cincinnati suburbs in northern Kentucky. Andy Beshear ran it up. He outperformed Donald Trump in the state of Kentucky, not in the percentage-wise, but I mean in these suburban areas, right? So how does this happen? That's the big question. 67,000. So the White House says when Joe Biden's on the ballot, he can draw the contrast with Donald Trump or whoever it is, just like he drew the contrast with Daniel Cameron. That's what we'll see. A big debate in the Democratic Party about this. And you've been traveling around the country. You've been speaking to voters. Our new CNN polling shows Biden is losing support among some key blocks, like black voters. What do you hear when you're out on the campaign trail? So we went here. If you look at this state, you see all that red? You see all that red? Joe Biden won by 20,000 votes in Wisconsin. Donald Trump beat Hillary Clinton by 20,000 votes. It's down here. The Democrats need to turn out black voters here in Milwaukee County. In the city, this is Biden's problem, the enthusiasm problem. It's not all about him, but listen to Joanna Brooks. She owns a yoga studio just over the line in Glendale, a suburb of Milwaukee. Uh, she's voted Democrat all her life. She says, maybe I should rethink that. Black people in general, I think, tend to be pretty loyal to the Democratic Party. Um, and sometimes I wonder, just based on how that party has performed thus far for people of color, if we should continue to be. That's not all just about Biden, but that's sort of, you know, disappointment that goes back years for her. Listen to Angela Lang. Angela Lang runs a community activist group, black leaders organizing communities. She says on the issues that Joe Biden made promises and he hasn't delivered. People are wondering, what is he doing in terms of police accountability and criminal justice reform? I get really concerned that Democrats don't have a solid enough message to push back on some of these tough on crime messages and end up kind of stepping into the pitfalls and um, saying things that really aren't helpful. And so it gets us back to the conversation we were just having. Joanna Brooks 
thinks maybe black voters should think about moving away from the Democratic. But she says not next year because of Donald Trump's attacks on voting rights and on abortion rights. Right. So she says she's with the Democrats next year. It's a longer conversation. So that actually backs up the White House point that when Biden's on the ballot, he'll be OK. Angela Lang says she's worried about being able to turn black voters out, that Biden better get out there. And he better explain to people why he didn't pass criminal justice reform. She says to the age question, he needs to be more visible on the streets. Mm. All right, John King, thanks so much. So what did Republican presidential hopefuls take away from last night's elections? Has it changed their strategies going into tonight's third Republican debate? CNN's Jeff Zeleny is at that debate site in Miami. And Jeff, what are you hearing from the Republican candidates as they prepare to take the stage? Well, Jake, we are hearing a lot about what happened last night. This debate is unlike the other two we've seen. One, it has only five candidates will be on stage. So each of them will have more time to make their uh, their arguments and they'll have more time to go after the former president as well. I am told by all of the campaigns they're going to try and do both. Yes, try and distinguish themselves from one another, but also point out some key differences with the former president, largely the Trump era. The results of last night's election largely show in most of these candidates' uh, views that the Trump era has been bad for the Republican Party. We've seen it in midterm elections. Of course, we saw it in 2020 as well. Look on abortion, for example. That is one key dividing issue. Tonight, for example, Nikki Haley, the former South Carolina governor, she for months has been calling for a consensus on this issue. A big difference between what she has been doing and what Florida Governor Ron DeSantis did right here in Florida. He signed a six-week abortion ban into law. So look for that to be dissected tonight under the lens and the the backdrop of what happened last night in those key races. Also foreign policy. This is the first debate that has been uh, taken place in the context of the Middle East war. Many differences on that front as well. Jake, the bottom line is time is running out for these candidates to make their move, make their mark. Many of them are hoping to do it here tonight. Jake. All right, Jeff Zeleny in Miami. Thank you so much. Coming up next, Donald Trump's daughter, Ivanka Trump, in court today. Her testimony in the civil fraud case against her dad and the family business. Plus, the current president's son, a new subpoena today for Hunter Biden. What is that about? That's coming up. In our Law and Justice lead now, Ivanka Trump, former President Donald Trump's daughter, is still on the stand right now testifying in the New York civil fraud trial against her father, her brothers, and the family business. CNN's Kara Scannell is outside the courthouse in Manhattan. Kara, we know Ivanka is not a defendant in this case, but she was required to testify as a witness. She's being cross-examined right now by Trump's defense attorneys. So what did New York's attorneys press her on earlier today? Well, Jake, that's right. I mean, she's no longer a defendant in this case, and she lost her effort to block her subpoena to be here today. So now she's been on the stand all day long, and the state attorneys have been pressing her about her involvement in a number of deals, the deals that got loans from Deutsche Bank that are at the heart of this lawsuit, and those include the Doral Golf Course in Florida and also the old post office building in Washington, D.C., and a lot of Ivanka Trump's testimony today has been about those relationships. Now, she was also asked about this apartment that she has in Manhattan, a penthouse apartment that she had an offer to buy for $8.5 million. On her father's financial statements, it was listed at two and a half times that at $20.8 million. But Ivanka Trump distanced herself from that, saying that she didn't know what went into that calculation and what didn't. But as it relates to those loans that are at the center of this, you know, they saw we, we saw documents today of her involvement in this, emails involving her, and she acknowledged that she was involved in that, but she also said it was at a very high level. She wasn't involved at the granular nitty-ditty 
nitty, nitty gritty details of it. So again, trying to distance herself just as her brothers, Donald Trump Jr. and Eric Trump did when they testified last week in this case. You know, cross-examination got underway and they were uh, having her talk about the relationships with Deutsche Bank and under Cross, she was having a lot more leeway to explain that the bank, it was excited to do business with them, that the co-chair of the bank came and met with her and her father at Trump Tower, discuss future deals with them. So they're trying to counterbalance this narrative that the banks were victims in this case. And that is their defense, that the, that the banks had, had not lost any money and that they were not victims. So th this is really Trump's side's first opportunity to have a witness who is able able to provide some of the defense that they have wanted to come out through this case. Now, she is still on the stand. Court wraps at 4.30. Uh, it's unclear she'll be back tomorrow since they were still conducting cross-examination. But a lot of this focus today on these deals, the Doral Golf Course and the old post office building, which she was very much involved with. Jake. All right, Kara Scannell in New York. Thank you so much. Also in our Justice to law and justice lead today. Uh, House Republicans issued subpoenas for President Biden's son Hunter, as well as the president's brother James, calling for them to testify before the House Oversight Committee. This is part of the impeachment inquiry into President Biden. Let's get straight to CNN's Melanie Zanona on Capitol Hill. Melanie, uh, are Hunter and James Biden expected to cooperate? Um, and when are they supposed to testify? Well, this could become a showdown. The two sides are going to have to negotiate the terms of their cooperation. But Hunter's lawyer did give us a statement and said that Hunter Biden would be willing to cooperate in a public forum and at the right time, though they also did dismiss this entire inquiry as a political stunt. Now, in terms of the specifics, two subpoenas went out to both Hunter and James to sit for depositions in December. A subpoena also went out to Rob Walker, a business associate of Hunter Biden's for a deposition in November. And additionally, Republicans also requested voluntary interviews for transcribed interviews from a slew of other Biden family members and business associates. And this all comes, Jake, as Republicans are trying to wrap up their inquiry into President Joe Biden. They've been specifically focused on bank records from family members trying to prove a link between the president and his son's foreign business deals. But they have not yet proven that the president directly profited off his son's business deal, something that the White House and Democrats have repeatedly pointed out. So it's really unclear what these interviews will bring. There's certainly a lot of pressure on Republicans to deliver in this final stage, especially because moderate Republicans are still not yet sold on the idea of impeachment. But no less, this is a big deal. These are the first subpoenas that have been sent to members of the Biden family member members, and no doubt it marks a huge escalation in their probe. Jake. So meanwhile, while they're focusing on this, next week the U.S. government is going to run out of money. Uh, so this sets up another spending showdown. This is going to be the first big test for the new House Speaker, Mike Johnson. Do you have any idea what Speaker Johnson's strategy is here? I don't know that Johnson knows his strategy yet. He is not tipping his hand. He has promised to reveal a plan within the next 24 to 48 hours. But there are multiple options that are being debated within the conference right now. One idea is just a clean stopgap bill that goes until sometime mid-January, leaves out critical aid for Israel, Ukraine, border, and Taiwan, which is what the White House has requested. The other option is this more complicated option, which is a sort of two-tiered stopgap spending bill where some agencies would expire perhaps in December. Some agencies would expire later in this year. This is an approach favored by the House Freedom Caucus. So Johnson has shown that he's paying a lot of attention to those members. And then the final option would be to try to negotiate something with the Senate. But that is seen as the least likely option at this point. But government funding set to expire next week, Jake. We'll see what plan they come up with. All right, Melanie Zanona, thank you so much. Republicans 
in the House and the Senate are faced with a dilemma. Could the debate over aid for Israel pose a national security risk for the American people? I'm going to ask the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee next. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I'm a health reporter and have been for 15 years. And even I feel overwhelmed by some of the things I read about the stuff we're eating. My colleague Meg Terrell wanted to take a deep dive into something you've probably heard a lot about recently. Ultra-processed foods. There is a lot to learn there, some fascinating stuff. And some of it is probably going to change the way you shop. Listen to Chasing Life wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, moments ago, Ivanka Trump left the New York courtroom. There you see her uh, walking out of the courtroom. She'd been testifying in the civil fraud trial against the Trump family business. Uh, Ivanka is not a defendant in the case. She was required to testify as a witness. Former President Donald Trump uh, testified earlier in the week. The trial is expected to wrap up in mid-December. In the politics lead, it has been more than a month since Hamas's brutal attack on Israel, where more than 1,300 Israelis, uh, mostly, mostly civilians, uh, were killed in unimaginable ways. And the United States Congress still has not passed an aid package for Israel, one of America's closest allies, as lawmakers in the House and Senate are currently sparring over whether aid for Ukraine should be included in that package. Listen to Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, Democrat of New York, this morning. Republicans must shun doing the thing that some hard-right Republicans want them to do. Take issues that on their own have strong bipartisan support and inject them with toxic provisions that make it impossible to get anything done. That's what happened last week with the House Israel bill. Joining us now to discuss, uh, Republican Congressman Mike Turner of Ohio, who's chairman of the House Select Committee on Intelligence. Chairman Turner, you've been raising the alarm about a heightened terror threat level in the United States. Do you think uh, all of this squabbling over the bill, uh, especially the Republican infighting when it comes to funding the government, sending aid to Ukraine and Israel, do you think that makes uh, America look weaker before the world? No, I think these really are just substantive debates that are occurring about how we're going to fund this, what was a very large national security project uh, or bill that came from uh, the White House that included, of course, uh, funding for the border, funding for our interest in Asia, Ukraine and Israel itself. Uh, So I think and now we come up to the deadline of funding the government and possible government shutdown. I think this is just part of the normal discourse. Uh, We will get this done. Uh, It'll get across the line. And, uh, you know, Chuck Schumer and then may or may not be happy, but but work will happen and this bill will get done. 
The Hamas-controlled Ministry of Health in Gaza says more than 10,000 people have been killed uh, in Gaza. Whether or not you buy those numbers, and I know uh, President Biden does not, I think we can all agree thousands of innocent people have been killed. Too many people have been killed. Here's how one civilian rights uh, expert uh, put it to the Washington Post. Um, the Jabalia strike, because it was a planned attack, shows that Israel must have a tolerance for civilian casualties, which is orders of magnitude greater than that was used by, say, the U.S. Air Force in the war against ISIS, unquote. Do you think Israel could and should be doing more to limit civilian casualties? Well, I think the administration's been clear, and certainly in Congress our debates have been clear, that uh, civilian lives in, in uh, Gaza are very important, that uh, Palestinian lives should be protected. Um, what we have here, though, is that, that Hamas itself uh, is holding the Palestinians in Gaza hostage, and they have been for several years. They're much of a victim of, of uh, Hamas, as, as Israel is. And so what you see now in this conflict is, is Israel goes to defend itself, to dismantle Hamas, to take out its leadership. You know, this very difficult uh, process of, of fighting Hamas in, in among uh, Palestinians in Gaza. Uh, but certainly they have been strongly um, you know, encouraged and cautioned by the United States with respect to civilian casualties. Yeah, but you're, on the, you're the chairman of the, of the House Intelligence Committee. You see the intelligence. Are you convinced that Israel is really significantly, sincerely trying to limit civilian casualties or, or not? Well, we just had a classified briefing this week, and you know, we all walked away with the... the impression that, that certainly you know, Israel is, is attempting to do that, but the, of course the United States is still not, not pleased that things are not up to the standards that we would, would expect or, or hope. Um, and, and we're continuing to pressure Israel uh, about that. And I think that that is a discourse that's incredibly important. These are people's lives that, that need to be protected. So they are trying but not hard enough is basically what you're saying. Well, I think there is a gap between what, what uh, the United States standards would be, what we expect, uh, and what we're, we're seeing on, on the ground. Um, and I think Israel and the United States are continuing to be in discussions uh, about that. And from the briefings we've received, uh, the discussions are being fruitful, and they're certainly being taken seriously. Quickly, uh, you represent uh, part of Ohio, so I want to ask about the big news from last night. Ohioans voted uh, to put the right to abortion in Ohio's Constitution. Were you surprised at the results and do you think your party is just out of touch on this issue from what the american people want well i think what happened whenever you take a constitutional provision like this uh, and write it into a state's constitution it's unfortunate especially since it's being written by people outside of the state um, they have different uh, goals and objectives and i think many of them are, have values that don't even represent the people who are, are voting to pass it. I think this is a very difficult uh, and a debate that we're having across the, the country to try to find that spot where people feel uh, feel comfortable. Um, this is one I think that, that does go too far. We'll have to continue this debate. It'll happen across the country, and I think it'll continue in Ohio. All due respect, seven out of seven uh, times since uh, the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, seven out of seven. Uh, People in states such as Montana and Kentucky and Ohio have voted in favor of abortion rights. And maybe you don't like who wrote it, but Ohioans voted for it. And my point was, I don't, I don't like what it says. And I think most Ohioans in the end, when they see the application of these, what I think are very left provisions, you know, even if you're pro-choice, there are, are, there are limits and there are things that I think people will be very concerned about. There'll be the outcomes of these. But that'll be about part of the, the democratic debate that we have. Um, and, and we'll come to, I think, as a society, you know, a, a place that people feel um, might, might be more representative of, of even the people in Ohio.
House Intelligence Committee Chairman Mike Turner of Ohio, thanks so much. Good to see you, sir. Thanks. The House of Representatives has voted to censure Democratic Congresswoman Rashida Tlaib of Michigan over comments she has made about Israel in the wake of the Hamas attacks one month and one day ago. Last night, 22 Democrats joined most Republicans in formally rebuking Congresswoman Tlaib. She is the sole Palestinian-American in Congress. The resolution focused mainly on a video that she posted on social media last week, which accused President Biden of, quote, supporting genocide of the Palestinian people, unquote, and using this chant. That chant, from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, is often interpreted as a call to dismantle the state of Israel, which sits between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. It is widely considered anti-Semitic as it seeks to erase the entire Jewish state. It's a rallying cry used by terrorist groups such as Hamas, which, as you know, slaughtered Jews and committed atrocities against Israelis on October 7th. Here's Democratic Congressman Jared Moskowitz of Florida, one of the 22 Democrats who voted to censure Congresswoman Tlaib on our show earlier this week. From the river to the sea means the destruction of Israel and everyone who's in it, okay? Just like Mein Kampf is not a coloring book and the final solution means exactly what Hitler meant it mean. From the river to the sea is calling for the destruction of an entire country. Congresswoman Tlaib says that the chant is, quote, an aspirational call for freedom, human rights, and peaceful coexistence, not death, destruction, or hate, unquote. Here she is defending herself on the House floor last night. I can't believe I have to say this. But Palestinian people are not disposable. We are human beings, just like anyone else. My city, my grandmother, like all Palestinians, just wants to live her life with freedom and human dignity we all deserve. Congresswoman Ilhan Omar of Minnesota, who you just saw in that clip, comforting Tlaib, called the censorship a, quote, glaring hypocrisy. She pointed to this statement made by Congressman Max Miller of Ohio about the Palestinian people. They're not a state, they're a territory that's about to probably get eviscerated and go away here shortly as we're going to turn that into a parking lot. Censures in Congress are relatively rare. Only 25 members of the House before Tlaib have been censured. Tlaib is now the 26th. Israel is giving Palestinian civilians a short window to move out of harm's way, the walk to safety on what may be the only road to survival. That's next. Today, the Israel Defense Forces opened a five-hour window for Palestinians to evacuate towards southern Gaza. The IDF says it's fighting Hamas in the north inside Gaza City. Thousands of innocent civilians have been killed in Gaza during Israel's unrelenting campaign against Hamas in the month since Hamas's barbaric rampage, where the terrorist group killed at least 1,400 people in Israel and kidnapped an estimated 240 hostages. CNN's Salma Abdelaziz reports now on the thousands, thousands of Palestinians fleeing their homes as the war rages on. Taking only what they can carry, families are fleeing Gaza City. They wave white flags made of anything they can find. And as the sounds of war echo around them, they signal yet again that they are innocents. Now we're supposed to be in the safe area, but you can hear the bombs behind us. 
He says, all of our houses are gone. Nothing is left. The Israeli military has been calling for weeks on all those living in the northern part of the Strip to move southwards, most recently opening what it called safe corridors for limited windows of time, pushing thousands here to Salah Dean Street, where evacuees describe a harrowing journey. We saw along the road destruction, dead bodies everywhere, and the Israeli tanks would demand to search the youth, she says. We saw one young man stripped naked. We witnessed unbearable scenes. The only way to reach the route is by foot or by cart for those who can find room. There was heavy shelling on our neighborhood and we were forced to flee. We have to use these donkey carts because there's no fuel, he says. They cut everything off to force us out of our homes. Israeli troops are now in the heart of Gaza City. As Israel's defense minister apparently declared the entire city, the whole of the enclave's largest population center, a legitimate target. Gaza is the biggest terror stronghold that mankind has ever built. This whole city is one big terror base. Underground, they have kilometers of tunnels connecting to hospitals and schools. The UN calls this exodus forcible displacement and accuses Israel of the collective punishment of some two million people. And many fear they will never be allowed to return home. Some here say this is reminiscent of the Nakba, the Arabic term for the expulsion of Palestinians from their towns during the founding of Israel. We walked a very long way. It felt like the Nakba of 2023, she says. We walked by dead people who were ripped to shreds. Children were very tired because there was no water. People were dying and there were elderly who couldn't walk. And for those who do make it, bombardment and siege await them in the south too. There is no true escape. Salma Abdulaziz, CNN, London. And our thanks to Salma Abdelaziz for that report. An American woman who finally was able to escape Gaza with her three children, one of them a newborn, got back to her home in New Jersey. She will join us next. And we're back with what passes for good news in this horrible war. Back in the first week of the conflict on October 10th, to be precise, we interviewed Hanin Okal, a New Jersey woman with three kids, one of whom was just two months old. They were just a few of the hundreds of Americans who spent nearly a month trapped in Gaza. She was visiting family in the north when Hamas attacked. And then, as requested by the State Department, Hanin and her kids moved south toward the Rafah crossing. And for days, the Okal family waited and waited and waited as food and water ran out. She shared shelter space with some 40 people, including Hanin's brother, Abu Okal, who was also in Gaza, whose story we also told you. And finally, last week, a broker deal allowed both Okal families to leave Gaza, and they arrived back on U.S. soil about 48 hours ago. And Hanin Okal joins me now from her home in New Jersey. Hanin, I am so happy to say hi to you in New Jersey. Welcome back to the United States. How are you? How are your kids? Uh, you, you told us the, the baby would wake up at night because of the airstrikes. Uh, how's the baby doing? Thank you so much, Jack. Yeah, we're fine. Thanks God we made it through here to uh, New Jersey. We're, we're okay. Uh, way much better than 
when we was in Gaza, my the kids are okay. They are so happy to see their dad. My husband is so happy to see us. Like, uh, he he was. He was scared that he won't be able to see us at all again. Uh, so we made it here to New Jersey, and I can't even believe it. Until this moment, I can't believe what we went through. But finally, we're here, and the baby is okay. The baby is okay. You know, there wasn't a day that we weren't calling uh, or texting people on, on your behalf um, in, until you got out. Uh, we, were, we were on the case the whole time. Tell us about those last few days in Gaza and your experience getting out. What was it like finally going through and, and getting to Egypt? It was so hard. Uh, we got out of Rafah to the border. Um, to the Palestinian side first, and then uh, the Palestinian side, uh, they saw their, our names on the list, uh, and then they checked the passwords, and then uh, they sent us to the uh, Egyptian side. Uh, the Egyptian side, they when we went there, they checked our names, and then uh, uh, they said everything is okay, but in my case, uh, with my son Elias, you know that my son didn't have the passport because um, I had to deliver him in Gaza uh, because of uh, my medical situation. I, I, I had to deliver him two months ago. Uh, I couldn't travel back to have him here in U.S. while I was visiting my family. So Elias didn't have a passport. Uh, we tried because we tried a lot to contact the U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem and I had an appointment in Tel Aviv until the war happened and then I couldn't be able to go there because they, um, like the, the you know, Ares uh, border, it got pumped. So it was miserable. I couldn't have any um, way to get him a passport. So we contacted the U.S. Embassy in Egypt, and they they did their best. Actually, they helped us a lot, thanks to them. Uh, they uh, printed an emergency passport for him, and they were there waiting for us in the Egyptian side to give us the passport so we can give it to the Egyptian so we can enter. Um, and yes, as I said, uh, the, US, um, the U.S. Embassy were waiting for us in the Egyptian side, they were very welcoming, very, they were, they did everything they can do to help every U.S. citizen in there, in the Rafah border crossing, and they were absolutely helping us in every, in, in all what they can do. Uh, I, I could uh, travel to Egypt because of this, because they gave me the passport for Elias, my son. Because in that case, I believe now Egyptians, they allow Palestinians to, I think the Americans or anyone, or through the, uh, the, the Palestinian passport to enter Egypt. If they don't have the passport, they allow them to have the ID number. But in my case, at the first, because I was from the very few uh, people who um, traveled, um, I was, I was on the list the day, the second day they opened the border. So at that time, it was very hard for people to travel without a passport. Yeah. So I could, I could go back to Gaza if I couldn't have the passport for my son Elias, and we couldn't be able to travel without him. 
so it was it was very scary for me that I if I couldn't get the passport for my son for my newborn I would go back to Gaza with my other kids uh, because we won't be able to leave him uh, right well thank so, God thank God and shout out to the hardworking uh, U.S. Embassy yeah. uh, personnel in Cairo who, who got that passport yeah. uh, for him. Told, told me that this was the first case that we did this for them. They did it for us. Like It's the first time that happened that they printed a U, an emergency U.S. passport that the mom is not uh, the mom or the dad is not showing up. It's just the information that I uh, I submitted on the application, and that's all. But uh, I can't, I can't like thank them enough. They did a hard yeah. work. I mean, yeah. Well, he's a special boy. He's a special little boy. So some rules had to be broken for him. I'm, I'm, I'm glad it happened. As somebody who was who was trapped in Gaza for all those weeks, I have to ask you: um, the Israeli airstrikes. Uh, Israel claims that they're targeting Hamas. You got to see where they were bombing. Uh, did it seem as though they were targeting specific Hamas targets, or did it just seem like they were bombing indiscriminately? Uh, seriously? I don't know. Nobody knows there. Because bombing is all over. Airstrikes is around the city, around the south. It's everywhere. You call, the, you call your relatives in Khan Yunis, or uh, in Deir el-Balah, or in Rafah, they all say that their areas are getting bombed. So nobody knows. Absolutely, they are bombing Hamas, but nobody knows if it's only Hamas because they want to reach Hamas in any possible way, you know? But the way they are doing it, I don't know if it's the correct way because it's it's it, it, it will reach a point that it's, you know, discriminately. Like, it's it's... Nobody knows that. Yeah. Serious. You still have family in Gaza. What have you heard I, from them? Have you heard from them at all? Yeah. Until today, like that's, I tried, I try now I try my best to get my, the, the rest of my family because I have sisters left there. My brothers, uh, my mom and my dad are still there. I can't believe that, you know, my heart is broken because, yes, I made it here and uh, with my kids and I'm with my family. We're okay. Uh, but I'm not happy because my family are there. And believe it or not, my rest of that, my family, they want to go out to get out of Gaza. They want to make it. It's Their houses are bombed. So even if the war uh, ends, they don't have a place to go back to, you yeah. know. Um, it's really hard because now the food is, they're suffering. They're really suffering. There's no enough food for everyone. They eat the canned food. There's no enough water. Um, no electricity, no internet. Even now the solar... Uh, the polar, the, the solar um, system, they it's getting bombed, you know? Yeah. So there is no power. It's really hard 
there it's really miserable i don't know if any human being can live in there i, I feel so sad for all the gazans not only my family members but for all the gazans i don't know how they are going to make it after all this i mean okay stay in, for, st stay in touch with us because we want to keep we want to keep on top of it i know you're safe and i know that your three kids are safe and i know your brother abud whose story we've also been telling is safe but yeah. we but obviously there are still millions uh, of innocent Palestinians who are not, and, and we want to stay on top of it. But we are happy that you're, you're back, Hanin. We are really, really very happy that you're back. So thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. A huge day for the Trump family. Instead of participating in tonight's 2024 Republican debate, former President Trump has his own counter-programming plan. Meanwhile, his daughter Ivanka just finished some counter-programming of her own, testifying in the civil fraud case against the family. What did she say on the stand? That's next. I'm Ina Garten. Welcome to Be My Guest, the podcast. One of the best gifts you can give friends is spending time together. But what's even better than that? Cooking with them. On Be My Guest, the podcast, new friends and old stop by my barn for some conversation and great cooking. We talk about food, life, and everything in between. Listen to Be My Guest, the podcast with me, Ina Garten, and join us wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, the agonizing wait for answers more than a month into the Israel-Hamas war. Hundreds of families still do not know the fate of their loved ones being held hostage. Right now, Two families are here in D.C. hoping U.S. lawmakers can help. They will join me in the studio this hour. Plus, America's latest abortion referendum as Ohio voters make abortion rights part of their constitution. Even conservatives are coming to terms with the shift in tide since the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. Take a listen. On the issue of abortion in Ohio tonight, we continue the losing streak in the pro-life movement. Our pro-life movement, and I am part of it, needs to be better about the way we discuss this issue. And leading this hour, another historic day of testimony in the New York City courtroom, this time from Ivanka Trump, Donald Trump's oldest daughter. She just wrapped up her testimony last hour, and now state's attorneys say they have rested their case. New York Attorney General Letitia James spoke just moments ago outside court, calling Ivanka Trump cordial, and courteous, but questioning her credibility. At the end of the day, uh, this case is about fraudulent statements of financial condition that she benefited from. She was enriched. And clearly, you cannot distance yourself from that fact. Let's bring in Tom Dupree, former Principal Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the George W. Bush administration and CNN Chief Legal Affairs Correspondent Paula Reed. And Paula, Ivanka didn't say anything outside the courtroom, unlike her dad or her brothers, Eric and Donnie. Uh, but what about in courtroom? Did, did she say anything noteworthy at all? Yeah, I mean, this was a big contrast from her father uh, and her brothers. There was none of the political uh, bias complaints, none of the sniping with the judge or the lawyers. And the questions really focused on technical aspects, questions about deals that she worked on when she was at the Trump Organization. And it did elicit what could be some helpful information for the state's case. For example, they talked about negotiating loan terms for the Trump Doral golf course and spa. She was involved in that. And the bank said, look, in order to get these favorable loan terms, you have to maintain a net worth of $3 billion. 
Well, they presented an email where she suggested lowering that threshold to $2 billion. They agreed on 2.5, but the question is why would you make that suggestion? Because at the time, her father on his financial statements said his net worth was over $4 billion. Gets to the heart of the case. They also presented evidence that the government had questions about their financial statements when they were trying to win the old post office project here in Washington, D.C., saying the way they were calculating things deviated from standard procedures. They also had questions for her about a penthouse apartment she had in one of her dad's buildings. There's a purchase option for $8.5 million, but on her father's financial documents, so that same apartment was valued at over $20 million. All of these things, they seem in the weeds and very technical, but they get to the heart of the case about whether they were fraudulently representing the net worth of the former president. Tom, what did you make of Ivanka's testimony? Did it, did it help her dad at all or hurt him? You know, I think it probably helped him, but at the margins. And, and look, I agree with Paul. They asked a lot of questions. On the other hand, I'm not sure she gave that many answers. She was very quick with the I don't recall or I don't remember. That was so long ago. For me, the big takeaway today was actually a normal day in court. She functioned as a normal witness. She engaged the prosecutor's questions. She smiled at the judge. She behaved as witnesses normally do in our system of civil justice, which is unusual in pretty much any Trump-related litigation, that there were no thunderbolts, no denunciations of the justice system no press conferences on the courthouse steps. So somewhat of a humdrum day in court that I don't think the state's attorneys really drew blood today. Ivanka does tend to get judged on a curve, graded on a curve, just because she acts like a human being uh, quite often. Uh, and unlike her dad, uh, she was cross-examined yeah. by her dad's lawyer. Yeah, this is a bit of a surprise because we haven't seen a lot of many cross-examinations here. And you got a preview of the defense that they're going to put on. They use this cross-examination to establish that there were really no victims here. The banks were paid and it allowed Ivanka to talk about how happy the banks were. She recalled Deutsche Bank, she said, was, quote, so happy to have this account. And she was able to sort of turn on the charm and talk uh, animatedly about the old post office project. So this is a preview of the defense, whether the judge is going to be swayed uh, and reduce the penalties. I'm not sure about that. But the cross-examination gave us a little glimmer of what we're going to see over the next few weeks. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I mean, look, her testimony on the cross was largely an advertisement for the Trump brand and for the Trump property. So in that case, it was true to form. And I agree with the point that I think the Trump legal defense team needs to focus on the next stage of this. They need to, number one, build an evidentiary record that will position them well to appeal what I'm sure is going to be an adverse decision. <clears throat> I think they also can make this point that they have been already about this was ostensibly a victimless crime, that the bankers love dealing with the Trumps, no one was hurt, so why are we even here? I'm not sure that argument will resonate with the judge. It may or may not resonate with the court of public opinion. Right, but they do get to present their case next, and they will. All right, Tom and Paul, thank you so much. Much. Uh, turning to our 2024 lead, tonight is the third Republican presidential debate. This one's in Miami, to no one's surprise. Donald Trump it will be a no-show. CNN's Kristen Holmes is in Hialeah, Florida, where Trump is instead holding some counter-programming, a rally. And, and Kristen, Trump's holding this rally to try to make some inroads with Latino voters. Yeah, that's right, Jake. I mean, this is an area that is 95% Hispanic, and this is a brilliant area that his team believes that they see opportunity. Trump had significant gains with Hispanic voters uh, back in 2020, between 2016 and 2020, uh, and they believe they can grow that ahead of a 2024 election. Obviously, Biden won the majority of Hispanic voters, so there is room there. But they also believe that this isn't just critical in a general election, but also in a primary against Ron DeSantis. We know that they are planning on launching a series of ads on 
non-Hispanic media, including radio, TV ads, all in the primary season. He also sat down for an interview with Univision yesterday that's going to air today. And I will tell you, Jake, you know, I've talked to a number of voters here, Hispanic voters, who say they are all in for Donald Trump. So clearly, you know, they're getting some of the messaging he is putting out. And, and uh, this all comes, of course, as the Biden campaign is launching two Latino-targeted ads around this debate tonight in Miami. It's turning into a battle between uh, the Democrats and the Republicans to win this voting bloc. Yeah, I think that it's very clear here, the fact that they're issuing these ads around the debate, that there is some concern on the Democratic side that this could be uh, some significant gains for Republicans among Hispanic voters. Now, it's not just those ads that they launched. They also put up billboards on the road to this event here in Hialeah attacking Donald Trump. Also, the road that leads into the debate in Miami targeting Hispanic voters and attacking Donald Trump, MAGA, Republicans overall. But I do want to play for you one of the ads that Biden released. Just like us, many come here for freedom and to make their dreams a reality. Joe Biden knows that because fighting for us to protect our freedom and our way of life is what Joe Biden has always done. The reason why I think this is so interesting is that actually that messaging there, protecting our freedoms, talking about looting to dictators, that's actually the same messaging that we are expecting to hear from Donald Trump at the rally tonight. Uh, so clearly they are both trying to channel a very similar group, similar block of voters here, and it's going to be very critical in this race in 2024. All right, Kristen Holmes, thanks so much. Appreciate it. The former president has yet to show up for any debates he has that civil fraud case against him, of course. He's been charged in four criminal cases. What is it propelling him to be the GOP frontrunner in this race? We're going to get into that. Also, word of a high-end brothel network busted with clientele including elected officials, military officers, government contractors with security clearances. The details on this breaking story ahead. Just into CNN, the Minnesota Supreme Court has rejected an attempt to block Donald Trump from the state's Republican primary ballot next year. Challenges argued that Trump should be disqualified under the 14th Amendment, which says lawmakers who, quote, engaged in insurrection, unquote, cannot hold future office. The court did say the challengers can try again to remove Trump from the general election ballot if he becomes the Republican nominee. Similar efforts are underway in Colorado and Michigan. There is so much more to discuss in our 2024 lead. Cue the music. Nice. 363 days away from the 2024 presidential election. Last night proved contrasting pictures of what Election Day could look like. On the one hand, Democrats winning major ballot victories in Kentucky, Ohio, Virginia. On the other hand, new polls show President Biden losing to Republican candidates in key matchups. Getting clobbered, by the way, by Nikki Haley. Clobbered. Apparently that doesn't mean anything to Republican voters, but clobbered. Um, So anyway, let me start, Doug, with you. Let's uh, start with the the debate in Miami. Trump, for the third straight debate, choosing to skip it. And I have to say, we were talking about this in our staff meeting today, the degree to which the public is not really seeing Trump, the full Trump, the Trump that we got for five, six years, is really remarkable. And I have to wonder how much that is related to his uh, strength in the polls. The fact that people are not getting the full 
Trump and all that means. Yeah, they get little drips and drabs in the courtroom coverage, but he's not on the court. He's not on the stage mm-hmm. berating Ron DeSantis, berating Tim Scott, berating Nikki Haley. We're not covering his rallies anymore the way we used to. He's not in the White House, obviously. And I wonder if you think that's part of the reason why he's doing better in the polls. I think, I think it's part of the reason. You know, when, when Donald Trump came down that escalator, uh, a lot of people, myself unfortunately included, sort of dismissed it, didn't take it for real. And as a campaign sort of morphed, it didn't really build. He didn't have a solid structure. He didn't have real campaign staff or real leaders. And what we see with his campaign now is he does. He has a team of pros. These are people whose advice he takes at least sometimes. And that's why we've seen him be smart and strategic um, on some of these things, like avoiding these debates where he would only be fodder for attack. And by not being there, he not only deprives these candidates of the opportunity to attack him, but he also knows that he will, he will be the definition of the story however he wants to be. And when he gets indicted, he's learned that his opponents are really opponents in theory than, than anything else. They not only not attack him quite often when he gets indicted, they reinforce his own messaging. Why would he get in their way? And remember, it's, it's not just that. It's like he's, he's not tweeting. That's right. I think that's a big part of it. You know, he's, he's, he's on Truth Social. But nobody's. Own, but only his fans are. His on fans, that. and then a couple reporters who <laughs> monitor him. Right. And and that's it. It doesn't have the same impact. And he's not doing. Play. He's real not doing really like mainstream interviews at all. He's you know he did that one with NBC, but he he's. He but we're, we're not seeing him calling apparently for hiring new liars. Excuse me. New, that was a Freudian slip. New lawyers, <laughs> new lawyers to investigate and imprison his old lawyers, which is something that is, is reportedly interesting. Yeah, what I'm We're saying is like Maggot all the stuff Haberman that people and, didn't yeah, like, all right, the stuff right. people got sick of, all the people who voted for him in 2016 and then didn't vote for him in 2020, they're not seeing what they didn't like. So you're saying less yeah. is more. Yes. I am. But that, that will not last through the general election. And I think that's no. one thing Republicans but should be mindful of. You might call it a basement type strategy. But that's exactly right. Exactly, right? So it is less is more. I mean, and, it, and frankly, I think we saw this play out earlier this week, frankly, in the court case, in that moment where the attorney general's office realized, let him keep talking. Don't stop him. And he just contradicted himself. It's a similar idea, right, in terms of if we were seeing more of him, if we were, and, you know, the decision not to take his rallies live and all of that, I think there's, there are a lot of good reasons. But I do think what it portends is that next year, when we do have, to Ramesh's point, more of a head-to-head, assuming he becomes the nominee, and you do see him engaging more publicly, and people are reminded what it felt like governing by tweet, his na- the nastiness, the mean, particularly given that when we do report on it, it's all the more dark, uh, I think, even than it was in 2020. I do think that that will be when we see an impact in the polls. So you, you're talking about the pros around him. Mm-hmm. And I think they are hiding from him the fact that they are hiding him from the public. I think he doesn't know or hasn't realized it. And like once he realizes the degree to which they are hiding him, that they are, that they are running a basement campaign, he will get mad and start to demand that mm-hmm. he put me on ABC, put me on CNN, put me on CBS. You know, I need you're, to. You're saying no. he likes attention. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, but I'm saying like I don't think he re, like he loves the cocoon. I mean, most politicians do, and he loves the cocoon so much he doesn't even realize how much he is ensconced and only preaching to the choir, and the American people aren't seeing him. Yeah, that's right. And the thing that people disliked the most, maybe, about the Trump administration was his constant 
constantly being in your face. Right. And so if he gets and there, people have had a reprieve from that. And so it's, I do think that that is part of the reason why he's doing as well as he is in the head-to-heads. And part of that is just staffing as well. I know you're friends with him, so please don't tell Michael Steele. <laughs> but when I started at the RNC, there were sort of two series of requests that would come in. Oh, yeah. The ones that I would show him and the ones that I would quietly deal with and say, well, we just got these three or four requests. We didn't get the 500 that have actually come in. That's part of what the job of staff is, to, is when you're trying to limit your boss's exposure, you limit what they're exposed to as well. Oh, I wondered yeah. why his... Uh... <laughs> Wasn't you? No, we said we're going to do the Jake Tapper interview. We're not going. Right. To- oh yeah. <laughs> I wondered why his time at, at the RNC was so stable compared to you know. It his- was stable. <laughs> okay. Compared to the yeah, MSNBC <laughs> tenure. Anyway, like so Chris Christie sent out a fundraising email where he showed a page from his notebook on tonight's de- debate strategy. One of the lines included his attack plans against Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis, saying they're auditioning to be in Trump's cabinet. Um, are these candidates wasting their, their time attacking each other? Shouldn't they be focusing on Trump? He, Trump is far and away in charge. I know they're all trying to become the alternative to Trump, but didn't we see this we in 2015, exactly 2016? What, exactly what they did in 2015, the, the rivals back then, including Chris Christie. Yeah. Uh, and, it, and it didn't work because, you know, you run out of time to make the case against the front runner. To yep. Christie, uh, just to, I should know, Chris Christie is taking on Trump. Yes. I mean, he's the only one really doing it. That's right. And his attack on the other candidates is that they're not attacking right. Trump enough. And I think that's right. I think that, look, there's, there are central arguments against Trump that simply have to be won if somebody is going to beat him. One of them being that he ought to be at the debates. Another of them being that he's a loser, that he lost in 2020. I don't know how you can maintain that you should be the nominee if you're not willing to even say that he lost last time around. But or last night. To, yeah. That's more relevant today than it yeah. was two days ago. Yeah. But you're, you're doing logic and conventional <laughs> wisdom. And one thing we know about Donald Trump, that does not work. I mean. You're right that Chris Christie has taken him head on, very macho, and he's tanking. It's not working. The person, though, who I think has actually made some progress, it'll be interesting to see how she does tonight and if she gets a bump tomorrow, is Nikki Haley. And as someone who works a lot with women candidates, I'm interested to see if at the end of the day it is the way she has taken him on, not directly naming him, but she has talked about some of his policies. She has... You know, she's gotten some digs in here and there, here or there. Maybe that's the way to do it. Every, we don't polls, know. every poll suggests that she's the strongest candidate against mm-hmm. Joe Biden. I'm and Republicans saying. do not want to accept that fact. I, w- I want to play what Republican Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene said her takeaways were from last night's election. We, we, we all know her to be the <laughs> wisest, yes. the wisest Republican uh, in, on Capitol Hill. So let, let's listen to her. I think Republicans are weak. They never come through on the promises that they give to their voters. Uh, they never hold anyone accountable. Stop backing away from President Trump. He's winning the primary by massive numbers. He's winning the polling for the general election. Clearly, people like President Trump and his policies. Well, uh, I don't think that it is true that candidates have done better by linking themselves more tightly to Donald Trump. And we saw that in Kentucky in the governor's race. Um, I don't think Trump is responsible for the Republicans losing that race, but the fact that the gubernatorial candidate, Daniel Cameron, tied himself to Trump didn't seem to help him. We've seen that in a lot of other places. I think Senator Herschel Walker would disagree with you. (laughs) Yeah, there's a lot of 2022 candidates. That that one hurt. All right, thanks one and all for being here. You liked him in the New Jersey generals, is why why you 
Was that the USFL? I sort of remember that. <laughs> Thanks one and all. After the GOP debate tonight, please join my colleagues Anderson Cooper and Dana Bash for the Republican presidential debate. Post-debate analysis covered starts at 10 o'clock Eastern only here on CNN. Up here on the lead, how successful are the IDF missions in Gaza in taking out Hamas? CNN on the front line with two veteran Israeli journalists given exclusive access to those missions. They're coming back with differing views. Stay with us. And we're back with our world lead. Israel's military says it has destroyed 130 Hamas tunnels, tunnel shafts in Gaza since the start of the war. Part of a vast underground network that allows Hamas terrorists to move undetected and where it's widely believed Hamas is holding the estimated 239 hostages. CNN's Nick Robertson is right outside of Gaza as Israel races against the clock to destroy the terrorist group. As crushing as Israel's airstrikes targeting Hamas are militarily, they've also become politically counterproductive. A crippling consequence, civilians, thousands of them, have been killed. Israel under U.S. pressure for a humanitarian pause. On the diplomatic front, we are working around the clock to provide the IDF with international maneuvering room for continued military activity. Netanyahu's plan to destroy Hamas is under threat. Time may be running out. The two clocks, one of how long will it take the IDF to finish what they see as their target? And second, how long are the international community, and specifically the U.S., would tolerate the continuation of this ground offensive, those, are too, those two are not in sync. I am afraid that the United States will succeed in stopping us from completing the work. Both Ben Yashai and Bergman are respected veteran Israeli journalists. Both have been taken by the IDF to the front line in Gaza. None of the strategic goals of this operation uh, has been achieved. Hamas are not going out of the tunnels. According to the IDF, Hamas operatives killed, rockets captured, launch sites discovered. But according to Ben Yashai, at a pace that both Netanyahu and Biden can stomach. They go very slowly because of two things. First of all, because, because of the Americans to be to be honest. And secondly, because of the safety of the, of the soldiers. Bergman says he's asked IDF officers if they can route Hamas from its tunnels. When you ask them, do you think that you can take out the whole of subterranean bunkers? They say, no, there's no way. Meanwhile, Hamas's regular rocket salvos into Israel reinforce their bunker resilience is working. This demand by the United States to make a humanitarian pause hits the, the deepest emotions of the Israelis. The Prime Minister and other speakers for the government and the military need to be by far more transparent um, and direct with Israeli public. 
So there's a real sense here that one month on, Israel is effectively weakened by its own strength, that Hamas is empowered by its tunnels. But that additional pressure from the United States on Israel really may mean the security that so many people here want through disposing of Hamas, whatever it's called, isn't going to happen. And effectively, Hamas is weaponizing the civilian death toll, and that's allowing them to buy more time. And that means they may get to fight another day. That sense that Israel really is under the pressure of domestic U.S. politics, that's real. And it's uncomfortable. Jake? All right, Nick Robertson and Stiro to Israel, thank you so much. Then there are, of course, the many families Caught up in this war, which has just passed the one-month mark, the loved ones of two hostages will join me next. It's been one month and one day uh, since Hamas's brutal terrorist attack on Israel. And the loved ones of 239 hostages are still watching, waiting Right now, they're watching Israel's military advance in Gaza, where, as far as they know, their loved ones kidnapped on October 7th are still being held. Tonight, we want to bring you the story of three of those hostages. We've been telling you the stories of so many of these hostages. Three of them tonight, Gali and Ze'ev Berman, are 26-year-old twins from Kibbutz Kfar Aza, inseparable best friends who have a shared love of soccer. The last contact that they had with their family was a WhatsApp message to their mom, on the morning of October 7th. Guy Iluz is also 26. He's a musician from Tel Aviv. He was at the Nova Music Festival when Hamas terrorists started their brutal attack. Joining us now to discuss, Gali and Zeev's Berman's brother, Liran, and Guy Iluz's mother, Doris. They're both here in Washington, D.C. to meet with American lawmakers. Um, and let me just hold this up. This is Guy Iluz. Uh, his mom is, is uh, with us here. And this is, uh, just as an, an additional one, this is Guy's friend, Almog Sarusi, also 26. These are just young people. These could be your friends. These could be your sons. These could be your older brothers. Just regular young people. In this case, they just happen to be Israeli. But they could be any young friends you have. <coughs> Um, Doris, um, so you have not heard from Elouz in a month. Uh, the IDF is operating in the, quote, heart of Gaza City. And I'm wondering what you, th what you think about that. Does that make you worry? Does it make, give you hope? Uh, it must be a, a conflicting emotions. I don't, I don't know. What? Definitely. Uh, there's days that I'm feeling, you know, afraid that the bombing will hurt him. Other days I'm thinking maybe he's hearing the bombs and he knows that we're coming, but all in all, I, I have faith in, in the IDF and I know that they're doing all they can to bring him back to me, so I trust them. And, and Liran, how do, you, how do you think your brothers are, are holding up? I hope they are together, I don't know. Uh, I hope they are safe, I don't know. Um, I do. Like Doris said, I do trust the IDF and the Israeli government that they know the approximate location, even not 100%, and they will not strike and uh, harm the hostages. Uh, we do trust the Israeli government and the IDF that they will do whatever they can to pressure Hamas and keep the hostages safe. So fear is there, but 
but we trust the government. Do you think there's more that you, you, you're here to meet with U.S. government officials? You've met with um, Democrats and Republicans on Capitol Hill. Yeah. Um, do you think there's more the U.S. could be doing to help get the hostages released? Um, definitely. Definitely. What, what could the U.S. be doing? Um, first of all, uh, they have a, a channel to Qatar, and that's the channel that they need to, uh, you know, progress in. Um, there's not enough done because if there was, they would be back. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, I think that's where the pressure should go. Liran, the last contact from your brothers was that WhatsApp message yeah. to your mom. What more do you know about those moments leading up to and, and following that message? We, we do know that what happened at Kfar Aza, that kibbutz, was, was horrific. Massacre. Horrific. It's one of the yeah. worst sites. Massacre. Um, we know nothing after this message. Uh, what did it say? That we are safe in, in the safe room. Uh, it was around 10, 10 in the morning of, the, of Saturday, and after that, complete silence. Um, for 10 days, we, they were considered missing. We had no confirmation that they were in Gaza for 10 days. No visual confirmation, no video, no nothing, no picture. And then after 10 days, Israeli officials came to us and told us that they are kidnapped in Gaza. They didn't give us any more information, I don't know intelligence they don't know but uh, it was 10 days after that they told us that they are hostages doris tell us more about your son's interest because i know he he has a dog yeah georgie georgie and he was studying psychology and philosophy yeah tell us about him um he's a philosophical guy we can go into deep conversations he's very sensitive uh opinionated about a lot of things uh, and he sees the world in terms of music it's somehow he translates every everything in music mm -hmm. um, have you thought about the first thing you will say to your loved ones when you see them again I love you I love you both yeah mm. I'll probably just smother him you know it's more touching for me uh, I'll I love him. That's what I'm going to say to him. I love him. Is there anything you want to say to, to any of the, of anyone who's watching? I mean, this show is on around the world. Obviously, there are people here in the United States who watch it, people all over the world who watch it. Is there anything, I don't know what camera you should look at, but let's just assume it's that one right there. Is there anything you want to say? I want to say thank you to the American people for having us here, for listening to us, for taking action for us. Those are regular civilians who got kidnapped from their beds, from a music festival, a peace music festival. They have nothing to do with the conflict. They just, we, the families, just want them home. And we need the support and the action of whoever can push the right buttons. Guy and Gali and Ze'ev will, will be back. Thank you. They will be back, and they will be back in your arms, and um, we'll keep covering it. We're going to keep covering it, um, and we're not. The story hasn't gone away. And I know that there are protests out there in the international community calling for a ceasefire. I wish that there were protests calling for the hostages to be released. Definitely. Yeah. The, the, that, that should be on, that should be, that we should have more people holding up signs for that. Yeah. 
Um, but that's what we're going to do on this show. Thank you so much for Thank being here. Thank you for having us. And, uh, and, and uh, stay in touch. Okay? We'll be right back. We have some breaking news for you now. The United States military carried out airstrikes in Syria today in response to a series of attacks against U.S. personnel in both Syria and Iraq. CNN's Natasha Bertrand's at the Pentagon for us now. Natasha, what were the strikes targeting? Well, they were targeting a weapons facility that was used by the Iranian Revolutionary Guard Corps, according to a statement that we got from the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin. And these strikes were carried out by two F-15s, U.S. F-15s in eastern Syria. And it comes about two weeks after the U.S. conducted similar airstrikes against Iranian-backed and Iranian proxy groups' weapons and storage facilities as well uh, in eastern Syria. So obviously the U.S. making an effort here to respond to the attacks that Iran-backed groups have waged against U.S. forces in the region. There have been about 40 such attacks in recent weeks by these Iran-backed proxy groups So the U.S. wanting to show that it is willing to conduct these strikes in self-defense. But look, Jake, this is not the only thing uh, that happened in the region today, far from it, involving the U.S. military. Uh, the Houthis, which is another Iran-backed group uh, operating in Yemen, they say, and the U.S. has confirmed, that they shot down a U.S. military MQ-9 Reaper drone that was operating off the coast of Yemen uh, earlier today. And so all of this obviously... You know, c contributing to the U.S. fears this is going to escalate. But for now, the U.S. says that today's strikes conducted in eastern Syria, they were meant for self-defense and they were limited in their nature and scope. Jake. All right, Natasha Bertrand, thank you so much. Turning now to our law and justice lead, the Justice Department just announced arrests in connection with what the feds are describing as a, quote, high-end brothel network with clients who included elected officials and military officers, government contractors, with security clearances and one imagines much, much more. CNN's Evan Perez is here. Evan, so far we know who was arrested, but not who were the customers. That's right, Jake. We don't know uh, any names of customers, but uh, the prosecutors uh, describe possibly hundreds of clients of this brothel service, this prostitution service, uh, and they say that these, uh, these people operated brothels in the Boston area as well as in the Tyson's Corner in Fairfax County here in the Washington, D.C. suburbs. Uh, this is an investigation that is still ongoing. They say that it stretches from Boston to Washington all the way to California. And what these people were doing is uh, bringing people in from overseas and, and, and moving them around the country uh, to service these clients who uh, went through very elaborate means to prove who they were before they were even approved to be able to buy the services of, the, of, this, uh, of this very high-end uh, service that they had. And uh, prosecutors in Boston, uh, Joshua Levy, who is the acting U.S. attorney there, described the who's who, basically, uh, of the type of clients that were going here. Listen. They are doctors. They are lawyers. They are accountants. They are elected officials. They are executives at high-tech companies and pharmaceutical companies. They're military officers, government contractors, professors, scientists. Pick a profession, they're probably represented in this case. Jake, the, uh, the service was charging between $350 to $600 an hour for these services. And as I mentioned, uh, this is an ongoing investigation, so you can bet. Jake, that there are a lot of very nervous people, especially here in the Washington, D.C. area. We're talking about people who are elected government officials, people who are military contractors, all of these people with security clearance who, of course, are still under investigation. Yeah, we've been through this before, though. They never, they never reveal the client list, though. 
Right. I, I think more reporting is reported is, is uh, needed for that, and we'll 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 stick to the story. Yeah, they never seem to list the uh, client list. Evan right. Perez, thank you so much. Also today, the Justice Department announced the indictment and arrest of ten alleged members of the Gambino crime family in connection with what the government says was an attempt to dominate New York City's private garbage collection and demolition industries. The defendants' nicknames sound like the cast of characters in a well Hollywood mob movie. Joe Brooklyn and Fifi and Vinnie Slick and V and Uncle Chichio, they and the others face charges involving violent extortions and assaults, arsons and other union related crimes. Here's something you don't see every day, giant pandas in FedEx cargo containers. The Chinese government is taking the pandas back instead of extending their visit to the United States. Have we Reach the end of the line when it comes to panda diplomacy? Shoot, they leave. The pandas from the National Zoo in Washington are on their way back to China. An emotional moment for those of us who have come to know those bamboo-eating bears. But it is also a sign of the escalating tensions between Beijing and Washington. And here to explain it all... It's Robin Wright, staff writer for The New Yorker. We usually have you on to talk about escalating tensions with Iran and the like, but you also have been tracking the pandas since 1978, and you were there this morning at the zoo. Let's start with the emotion, frankly, because these are beloved bears, right? I mean, what was it like when they left? In this city that is so polarized about so much, the one thing that has united uh, Washingtonians is really the panda bear. It's become the unofficial mascot of Washington. So it was deeply emotional. It was almost like a celebrity funeral with a cortege of the big crates, each carrying the, the pandas out and with the, the panda bearers, the pallbearers by the side. It was deeply emotional. Yeah. I remember years ago when they were having trouble um, getting pregnant, how sad it was for, for people. Like, I mean, they, it really was very sad and tragic. And the great contribution the zoo has made is in figuring out ways to encourage gene diversity to help uh, an endangered species become more versatile uh, to be able to survive its own numbers. So you've taken pictures of the pandas over the years. Um, what do you think was their impact on the millions in the U.S. who have, who have visited them over the years? Oh, I, I think that, you know, there were people today who showed up who'd driven from all over the country to say goodbye and only to find out that the pandas were gone. Oh. And, you know, just the heartbreaking uh, emotion of having to say goodbye to something that is so beloved, so cuddly, so charismatic, um, and so endearing, you know. Yeah, they are beautiful. Are they, are pandas bears actually nice, though? Are they, are they a nice animal? I know they're, they're gorgeous, but, but raccoons are gorgeous, too, and they're a very ferocious cr creature. <laughs> I suspect if you got up close and they felt threatened, they might... They're, they're bears. Yeah, they're bears. They but, are bears. But they're not meat-eating, you know. Um. Well, not currently. Um, the pandas have always been in the U.S. under agreements with China. China's renewed those agreements numerous times, extending their stay. What does it signal for U.S.-China relations that China did not extend it this time? For now, panda diplomacy is dead. Uh, mm -hmm. The zoos in Memphis and San Diego have already had to send their pandas back. Atlanta Zoo will have to send the Laos pandas in the U.S. back. It's happening across Europe. It's happening next year in Australia. That China basically is saying, we don't need this kind of goodwill diplomacy anymore. Uh, you know, we, we're not trying to, to kind of cater to public interest. We now are a big enough power that we you know, we're going to create this monopoly on our bears. One of the few places to still have one is Moscow, because 2019, huh. Xi Jinping 
gave two to Putin, whom he called at the time his best friends, and they will be there for 15 years. Really? Yeah. So they're really just like, we don't care what you think about us. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, this is a power play, and this is a way of saying, on the eve of a very important summit between President Biden and Xi Jinping in San Francisco next week. How can or, or should the U.S. try to repair the situation, or is it irreparable, do you think? I don't know that it's irreparable, but for now, this is something that, that China is kind of exerting its muscle and it's, uh, you know, it doesn't need to make those gestures like it did with the ping pong diplomacy and, you know, athletes coming to play on American teams. Uh, the, the zoo wants to have, have pandas again. It's, up, you know, t tried to get them their leases renewed, uh, but to no avail. Well, I have an idea. I went to a zoo in Bulgaria and they had raccoons uh, in, the, in the zoo. So maybe we can replace, I guess it's not really that good an idea. Robin Wright, thank you so much. I'm really sorry because uh, they, they are beautiful animals and it really, is, it really is sad. For Washington particularly. Yeah, we don't have a lot, that, we don't have a lot of beauty and a lot that unites us in this town. No kidding. Yeah, all right, Robin, thank you so much. This note, in honor of, in honor of Veterans Day uh, this week, you should join me uh, for the seventh annual Homes for Our Troops Celebrity Auction on eBay. You can bid on items. Go to ebay.com slash H-F-O-T, Homes for Our Troops. The money will go to building adapted homes for wounded veterans. A few items up for this auction this year. John Bon Jovi, autographed guitar. You can golf 18 holes with Jason Bateman and Will Arnett. You can get George Clooney's watch right off his wrist, his actual watch. A purse from Jennifer Aniston. There's so many things. Uh, there baseball, football, basketball. Check it out. eBay.com slash forward. HFOT Homes for Our Troops. The auction is open until Monday. Please check it out. If you ever miss an episode of Lead, you can listen to the show once you get your podcast. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer right next door in the Situation Room. I'll see you soon. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.